Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. I am flying solo today without any of my co-hosts, but I have a wonderful guest, Dylan Fox, who is the founder and CEO at a company called Assembly AI. I'm hoping to chat with him about some of the things that I'm most interested in this area at the moment, like text-to-image generation, some of the trends we might be seeing in people going back on-prem with their models, what the sort of future of machine learning is going to be as a service, and then what the areas he's really excited about, as well as which ones he thinks might be a challenge or that, you know, that kind of keep him up at night. So without further ado, Dylan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. So let's start at the beginning. What brought you into the world of software and at a 10,000 foot level, quick synopsis, how did that journey bring you to where you are today? I was always very into video games as a kid. I played a ton of Counter-Strike, RuneScape, World of Warcraft, like ton of MMORPGs. And mm-hmm. um, as part of that, I uh, would hang out on IRC all the time. And then my brother would build computers in our basement and was just always kind of like around a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got into setting up our own, for a couple of friends of mine, like private Counter-Strike servers on a remote Windows desktop that we would rent. And through that, built a website for us and learned some basic HTML and CSS. And then kind of put all of that on hold while I went through middle school and high school and college. And then after college, got back into software development. And I actually went to college as a econ major, but then just got into programming and worked on a bunch of side projects. Yeah. Did you put it on hold? You were like, I can't be a nerd my whole life. Got to put this to the side, but then it was, it was, that's like how I threw out all my magic cards in middle school. So I could felt like I yeah. would get a girlfriend that way. Now I regret throwing out $20,000 worth of magic cards. Yeah. 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 You know, I had an older brother that went into finance and I was like, oh, I should do what my older brother's doing. So let me get a business degree. So oh, it was yeah, more steps. Right. Exactly. And then pivoted when I got old enough to realize, hey, I can actually decide to do what I want to do. <laughs> Turns out tech pays better yeah. than finance anyway. So jokes on him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you got back into computer science and technology after school. What were some of your first gigs and how did you transition from those in more specifically into this world of AI and machine learning? Yeah, sure. So I was working on a startup towards the tail end of college with a couple friends of mine. And through that experience, got really into Python and Django and was building out all the backend for the startup that we were working on. Started attending a lot of Python and Django meetups in Washington, DC, where I was living at the time and got pretty connected to the community there where I just kind of fell in love with programming. Yeah. As I started to do more and more web development, I realized that I was more interested in backend development. And then as I started to do that, I realized I was actually more interested in like algorithm problems and machine learning problems. And at the time, it was still very classical machine learning focused, where I was doing a lot with like support vector machines and scikit-learn and NumPy. And deep learning wasn't like super popular yet. This is like maybe 2013, 2014. But through that experience, decided that I wanted to get way more into the area of AI and machine learning and ended up taking a job at Cisco out in the Bay Area, where I was on a machine learning team as a research engineer, more or less, working on NLP and NLU problems for different like Cisco collaboration products. Right. And then fast forward a couple more years, ended up starting Assembly after I had spent a couple of years working with neural networks and getting 
deeper into that tech. So that kind of landed me where I am here. Yeah, I forget. What year was it that there was like that breakthrough with the ImageNet competition? There was like, you know, kind of this watershed moment where these old models that have been proposed in the 70s and 80s and fallen out of fashion. Suddenly we realized, oh, we do have the compute now. And like, oh, at, you know, at this level, they do work better than, you know, right, you're saying some of the more like classical models you've been trying. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't remember the exact year offhand, but it's still happening. And I remember going to the first TensorFlow meetup down in Mountain View. I mean, it's still so new. A lot of these these frameworks are like still just a couple of years old. I mean, it's still so new. And so, you know, you mentioned, right, you kind of fell in love with this as you were getting back into programming and going to meetups and then as the industry was evolving. So what was the impetus at a certain point to leave Cisco and decide to build your own thing? Talk a little bit about that genesis of, uh, yeah, making, you know, kind of a, a bold choice to leave a steady job and, and, and create something new. I had kind of always knew that I wanted to get back into startups and to start mm-hmm. another company, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted it to be like a hard technical problem and I wanted it to be something that was very technically challenging because I thought that was more interesting to work on, but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in specific. But I was in San Francisco for a reason, which was, you know, I wanted to be around startups, work on another startup, had moved there from Washington to join this team at Cisco as kind of like a first step into figuring out what was next. And when we were at Cisco, I remember we were exploring a lot of speech recognition solutions, as well as a bunch of other NLP solutions. And this is like 2015, 2016, there were a couple of papers that came out in the field of speech recognition. One was called Deep Speech. Uh, I don't know Mm. if you're familiar with this, but it was a paper from Baidu. And it kind of popularized the idea and potential of using an end-to-end neural network for speech recognition, for automatic speech recognition, where, yeah, where classical approaches were built on like a daisy chain of old school models that had kind of like hit a ceiling in terms of accuracy they could support. And so we had the idea of what if we could use the latest AI research to build super accurate automatic speech recognition models and expose those through a Twilio or Stripe style developer experience to start. But the goal was always, what if we can do that not just for speech recognition, but for a number of other different AI tasks as well. So like today we have AI models for summarization and content moderation and topic detection and a number of different AI tasks that we research, train, and deploy in-house. But that was really the goal. It was, what if we can build an API for state-of-the-art AI models that gives developers and product teams easy access to those models? I just looked it up. 2012 was the year that a sort of convolutional neural net made a big breakthrough at the ImageNet Challenge. And like you said, 2013 was kind of the year you felt like things had turned. So yeah, it was right around that time that some of these systems came online and started to just outperform everything else by, you know, such a large percentage that people who had been dismissing, you know, this approach for many years had to sort of wake up and pay attention to what turned out to be a pretty radical transformation in the space. So yeah, let's get to a little bit of how your business works. I like the comparison to, to Stripe or Twilio. So I, you know, run a large internet forum and I want to start to classify the, the forum post by sentiment and by topic. You have an API that I can utilize. It ingests data from me. It runs through a system on your side. And then you share back a way for me to tag those forum posts with topic and sentiment, something like that. 
Correct. Yeah. So you could use our REST API to send audio files to, I mean, so when we got started, it was all audio based. Mm -hmm. So you'd send an audio file in. If we just focus on audio for a second, you send an audio file in and you say, Hey, with your API request, you would configure the parameters to say, Hey, I want to run this audio file through an automatic speech recognition model. Then want to also run a content moderation model over the audio to detect Mm. If there's any hate speech being spoken or violence being spoken. And I also then want a summary of the transcript. So you would configure your post request to do that. And then in the JSON response, you get back a couple minutes later. All that information is in the JSON response. Now you can also send text documents like forum posts or chat messages directly to our API and have them run through the same AI model. So you can say, hey, give me the sentiment for these forum posts or give me the summary of these forum posts or the topics that are being detected or like extract the keywords. And you can then get that data back and build a new feature or product on top of that data. And so, yeah, you mentioned you started out with text-to-speech or speech-to-text. What's the, you know, what universe of, of functionality do you now encompass? Yeah, so we have about a dozen models right now, and that number is growing. But we have models for embeddings, for summarization, content moderation, topic detection, PI redaction, really all around the task of NLP. So a number of AI models for NLP, and those can operate either on audio files, video files, or text documents. And we have APIs that can ingest the different types of data. We have a lot of things in the works to launch our own large language models, potentially even text to image models, which I know you're uh, interested in too, that are kind of, yeah, further off because those are so new. But for right now, we have about a a number of models, AI models that are state-of-the-art for those different NLP related tasks. Did you rely on like open source work or, you know, existing other models to create yours or were these created in-house? Like where do these come from? And I guess you just mentioned, you know, you're thinking about perhaps releasing your own. Would you then allow other people, you know, to, to sort of use that and, and make their own permutations of it? Right. Yeah. So all the models that we deploy are all researched and trained in-house. We leverage open source deep learning libraries like PyTorch and TensorFlow to train those models, of course, but we're not just taking an open source model and then like deploying it. We have a team of about 20 AI researchers in-house from places like DeepMind, Google Brain, open source community that are every day researching and training new models that we are then deploying. Yeah, everything is is trained in-house. Want the best remote engineering talent? Join over 300 companies who trust Turing.com to source, vet, match, and manage developers. With 2 million developers and over 100 skills, hiring high-quality engineering talent has never been easier. Enjoy a no-cost, two-week trial at Turing.com today. So that brings me to a question. I was thinking maybe I would write a trend piece on this, but I wasn't sure if it was a real trend. I saw one story on it, and then it was mentioned by a guest on on one of our podcasts that people are beginning to bring some of these you know, computationally intensive machine learning tasks in-house. They have their own hardware, their own instances to run this stuff, especially as in your case, they've created the models themselves. And in the end, they have more control. They end up saving money over constantly going to a big cloud provider to run them. And if you know they're doing something that requires less latency, like knowing when to restock shelves at a supermarket, you know, they're able to perform that task with more accuracy and less latency in-house. What's your perspective on this? 
I think there's a lot of layers to that question. So definitely big cloud GPU compute is very expensive, whether it's for training or for inference. So we do most of our training on-prem instances. We have a couple hundred, for example, we recently just purchased like a couple hundred more A100 NVIDIA cards that we have on on on-premise instances that we use to train. Crypto Winter has been kind to you. Those are on sale now. They're not (laughs) not as ridiculously expensive as they used to be. Yeah, yeah. There's crazy supply chain issues for those too. Like, yeah. I think it took a couple of months to get like some parts in before we could fully utilize everything. Anyway, we do a lot of training on prem. We do overflow a lot of our training to the cloud, but I think that it really depends. So, like, if you can do inference of your model on a CPU or like a consumer grade GPU that isn't super expensive, then for a lot of cases, like if you're doing, I, I've seen in some airports now they have these stores that have all these cameras for cashierless checkout, right? So they're like tracking you with computer vision models in the store and then detecting what you pick up and you can just walk out and they'll charge you with the card. Yeah, sounds like a lovely Right. Well, hopefully it actually is a (laughs) local AI model that's running and doing that and not someone like in a room in Silicon Valley, like watching you and then clicking some interface. Like they just picked up Doritos. They just picked up a Pepsi, which could very, very well be the case with the amount of funding that startups have been getting the last couple of years. So I think it really depends on the model that you're training and running. Like if you're training state-of-the-art large AI models today, a lot of times you kind of have to use a big cloud because you need access to hundreds of GPUs, if not thousands of GPUs to train those models. And then if you're talking about deploying those models for inference, I mean, so for example, we're processing millions of audio files and text documents every day with our API and all of those requests get routed to models that are running on GPUs, like we need high availability of GPUs. So a lot of times you have to still go to the cloud today to get that. But if we weren't running as compute intense models, you know, maybe we could have some local servers that we could run if our models were CPU based. So I would say it really depends on the problem that you're going after. Like not every problem needs to be solved with a, you know, billion parameter neural network, but Training for sure is most commonly done like on-prem. So yeah, I mean, I guess that brings me to my next question. You know, let's say you have these different flavors. You, you know, work at a company or you manage an organization that is not necessarily technology first. I'm sure it utilizes hardware and software in the cloud in some way, but you want to have machine right. learning for some function. You think it will be more efficient or productive or, you know, cost saving versus what you're doing now. And you have these choices between maybe making a model in-house and then, you know, running it through these big cloud or making a model in-house and you know running it on your own stuff, or then you know more like what you're offering, which is like a kind of AI as a service, where AI as a service, yeah. Or is that how you as you refer to it? You know, like where like you know that's the trendy term now. I think yeah. yeah I, I decide not to you know stock up on my own hardware, train my own models, but just turn to you. Like, what are the pros and cons there? And so you know, like, and where is the sweet spot that you're finding? You know, customers. So for the way we think about it is, our customers are product teams that are trying to implement these AI models into their products to power these features, sometimes even new products or even new companies. And we give them the easiest way to get access to these state-of-the-art production-ready models that we maintain, constantly update, and give a really good customer experience around. I think that no one has really, to be honest, like solved the go-to-market for like AI as a service company. There's a lot of different flavors. You know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. open source first companies. There's a couple companies like us that are API first, and then you have like the pure like research labs like DeepMind that are focusing on like protein folding and more like services <laughs> focused. So, I think the opportunity for an AI as a service company is huge because 
just like most companies need a database today, I think most companies are going to need some form of AI in their products in the future. Right, right. There's so many different tasks that can benefit from state-of-the-art AI models. Our opinion is that it's going to become fairly easy to get a toy model running through some type of open source library, but mm-hmm. to have a production-ready AI model that can scale, serve large-scale requests, be state-of-the-art, maintain state-of-the-art, that's going to be very difficult for a lot of companies to do internally, which is why you know, we're trying to be the place that those companies can come to to get that technology and get that AI tech into their products. So they don't need to take on the competency of trying to hire state-of-the-art AI researchers, maintain compute infrastructure to train models, constantly research, deploy, yeah. host. Like, There's a lot of work behind that to run state-of-the-art models. If you don't need state-of-the-art tech, it's definitely easier to do internally. But I think that at a macro level, most products are going to have to use AI in some capacity and are going to you know, use AI in some capacity, whether it's for an audio task or NLP task or vision task. And our opinion is that we're trying to give product teams and companies the easiest way to quickly get that state-of-the-art AI tech into their products so right. they can focus on the vertical applications they're building or whatever it is that makes their product unique and accelerate their development. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask another question. So you made good comparisons earlier to like a Twilio or a Stripe. And right. you, know, you keep referring to like yeah, a company that has an engineering or product team but doesn't have a deep competency or yeah, want to invest the resources in staying state-of-the-art all along the way. What about the sort of more like the Shopify model, which is, you know, like more to the consumer? Can you envision a world in the future where you might be offering, you know, yeah, useful, you know, AI tooling that is easy enough for somebody with a WordPress blog or, you know, an Instagram account that is their small business, that is their, you know, creator economy to hook up to and utilize? Or do they need to have, you know, a couple of programmers in-house to figure all this out? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a company like that will exist. Where I sit today, I don't think that will be us. I think we're really focused on developer tools and developers and product teams. And I think there might be some product team or developer that builds that mm-hmm. on top of our AI models, you know. But I think while I think that could exist and will probably, we are really focused on just empowering developers today and product teams, not the consumers yet. Yeah. So if a developer comes to you and they, yeah, they want to, they want to start to use your stuff, what do they need to know? Do they need to know certain languages and frameworks? They just need to know how to make a REST API call. Like what does a developer need to know to work with you? Yeah. They just need to know how to make a REST call. So it's actually a really simple API. You just make a post request mm-hmm. with your data and the parameters that you want to, like basically the models that you want to run against your data. And then you make a get request to get the results of the model like a couple minutes later. So it's really simple API. And if you know how to make an HTTP post and get, you can use the API. So it's very simple learning curve for most developers. Do folks get to like choose then? Can they say, I need this back in one minute or, you know, put me in relaxed mode. It'll cost less, get it back to me in an hour. Or, you know, I need this much noise or I need this much clarity. Do they have choices like that? We do have a lot of parameters that you can set in your request to customize how the model performs to your specific use case or what you're trying to do. For example, like our summarization model can return many different length summaries. You can get like a few word summary, a single sentence summary, multi-sentence summary, you can control that. Our transcription model, you can control the vocabulary, 
the language, like different dialects. You can do all that with your API request. And then depending on the API you use, the speed is different. So we do have different APIs for speed. Like we have real-time APIs over you know WebSocket protocols. We have synchronous APIs to actually get the response back like immediately in the request response loop. And then we have asynchronous APIs where you're basically submitting a job and then getting a webhook like a couple minutes later when it's done. So the pricing is different for each and it really depends on what you're building, but you have a lot of options basically right, depending right. on like what you're trying to do. So what's the, some of the stuff you're most excited about? I know you mentioned AlphaFold. That one is super exciting in the abstract. It's you know beyond me yeah. how it's really being applied. Other stuff I love is that you mentioned is Dolly and Midjourney. You know, like I signed up recently for the paid version of Midjourney just because like it's super fun. I use it to make like imagery for playing Dungeons and Dragons with my sons. It's like oh I need a new character. Oh I need a new setting. Like just dream it up. If it doesn't look perfect, it doesn't matter. Like you get the you get the idea. Yeah. And I guess you know like it it occurs to me that for the you know, enterprise version, which is a couple hundred bucks a year. If I can get two or three blog post illustrations or YouTube thumbnails out of that, you know, now the tool has paid for itself. So what right. are you most excited about in, you know, some of that sort of like cutting edge AI stuff? And what are you most worried about? I'll ask that next. But, you know, like as I use Midjourney, I worry about the future career of illustrators that we have employed, you know, as this stuff sort of gets better at machine learning speed. Right. Actually, I did see, I'll send you a link later, but there's a open source implementation of AlphaFold that's starting to be built out. I'll send you a link. It's pretty cool. Okay, uh, there's there's sweet. this guy out in GitHub. I don't know if you've come across his GitHub repo or his GitHub username. It's, it's uh, Lucid Reigns, but he does mm -hmm. all these open source implementations of these new neural networks that come out. He did one for Dolly 2 and for Imagine. You should right. check it out. Like today, At today's point in time, the text-to-image models are so cool. I'm also a yeah. customer. I signed up for a paid plan of MidJourney. I, yeah. I think they're models are so fun and creative. And I remember seeing like one of our investors is uh, Nat Freeman. And I remember seeing him post some of these images on Twitter a while ago and I was blown away. And then I like did some research because Midjourney was kind of on the DL for a while yeah. and you know got into the beta and it's so cool. So the text to image models are definitely very trendy right now. There's all open source versions coming out almost every week. I don't know if you've seen stable diffusion, if you've heard of that, but there's a open source diffusion model, text to image model that you should check out called stable diffusion, which is can run on like consumer grade hardware locally in like a second. Nice. So you should check that out. But that's the stuff that I'm most excited about. And I think that the rate at which we're seeing progress in the AI field is just crazy. And the yeah. consolidation of different domains into like single bodies of research is also kind of crazy. Like even a decade ago, you know, different model architectures were used for different tasks, mm -hmm. whether it was vision or speech or NLP, but now, you know, like transformers are used for most tasks and like, you don't need to have that much domain specific competency to work in different domains. If you just know uh, how to build these AI models. So that is, really exciting and I think is accelerating the rate of research that's happening because yeah, you know, you don't need to have all these disparate threads of research. It's just kind of like all in one direction. And so it's seeing a lot of acceleration. And I think that that is really exciting, but also, I mean, I guess you could, yeah, from a fear perspective, we are going to see <laughs> some pretty crazy changes, you know? I mean, right. I do think, yeah, you're going to be able to go to within like a year. Absolutely. You can imagine being in some video editor 
tool and just typing in like, hey, I need this clip art image or whatever to yeah, drop into exactly. that image. Or you can probably change the entire background with the diffusion model or you know, yeah. like text to video models. I mean, it's I think we're gonna continue to be really blown away by what comes out of the AI field over the next like two, five, ten years. Yeah, you make a great point, which I've kind of noticed that AI sits at the intersection of academia, open source, and you know, the the uh, largest most well-funded corporations, as well as, you know, lots of aggressive and well-funded startups and the the freedom of that, you know, data and latest models and latest developments to be shared through research or, you know, and then open sourced really seems to be driving an innovation cycle at a pretty incredible speed. Yeah. Yeah, To your other point, you know, like I myself, I'm not a like AGI is coming and like, you know, Skynet is coming kind of guy. It's more like, what will the impact be on the economy or on a certain subset of workers or what will the impact be on you know our ability to distinguish real information from misinformation you know like the real time right video ai generator that you know cooks up something right after a big incident and publishes it on twitter is is a scary is a scary thought yeah i mean you know think about <laughs> someone was telling me this like you could start a whole line of children's books with all the illustrations you know being from a diffusion model and the story right. being from a large language model. And you could just like, <laughs> you know, farm those out and automatically publish those to Amazon. And yeah. I agree, like I'm not sold. I think we're going to have to invent like the current technology that we have in the field of AI. I don't think AGI is just going to like be birthed out of that or like emerge right. out of that like primordial soup of like AI tech that we have today. I think yeah. there's going to have to be like some new technology invented, but I do think there are going to be these new tools that are exposed to everyday people that are powered by AI. And you already see this with devices like Alexa and Google Home and totally. Siri. I know these are people give those products a hard time, but they are very new and they're pretty amazing. I remember when I first got the Alexa and I could talk to it from across the room and start a song. That was mind-blowing. And I think that similarly, there's going to be tools for creators, for writers, that are going to be powered by AI that are going to really change so many industries. So normally I shout out the winner of a Lifeboat badge, but we have done so many podcasts this week that we're out. So when that happens, I like to shout out the winner of an inquisitive badge, somebody who came on Stack Overflow and asked a well-received question on 30 separate days, maintaining a positive question record. So thank you to Edson Horatio Jr. You've been very curious and you've helped to spread some knowledge around the Stack Overflow community. We appreciate you. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? It really helps. So Dylan Fox, founder of a company called Assembly AI. Best place to check us out is our website, assemblyai.com, or our Twitter handle, assemblyai. We post a lot of fun developer content. So yeah, that's the best place to check us out. Wonderful. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.